And as you take your seats, it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker this morning. Uh, Daniel Delwood is a, a man who uh, I first noticed that his questions were really good questions. Uh, when, when he asked something, it was insightful and it made me think. Uh, and then as I got to know him a little better, I realized that he was trustworthy. And then as I continued to get to know him better as an elder, as the chairman of the board of trustees, uh, as a brother in Christ, uh, he's a guy who has a unique gift of communication. So Daniel, would you come up and share what you've got from God's word? Thank you. Well, howdy, everybody. I'm Daniel, and I'm honored that uh, Tim asked me to speak this week on the intersection of faith and work. Now, for those who don't know me, uh, I love Jesus. I've been a software engineer for about 13 years, and I'm blessed to be Sarah's husband and Levi's dad. So, of course, I brought pictures. Uh, the first is a fun family photo, and it's actually hard to believe that it was almost 10 years ago that Sarah agreed to marry me. Uh, Levi's definitely growing. He's 15 months old now. So the second pic picture I brought was, is of uh, Levi in a penguin outfit, because why not, right? It's just cute. Anyway, uh, a little bit more background on me. Um, I grew up in central Missouri, and I've always been a bit of a geek. I know that's really surprising to all of you. I'm into to puzzles of all types, and I've been using computers um, basically as far back as I can remember. So it's not really that big a surprise when I tell you that I wanted to be a programmer when I grew up. And at 17, I headed off to uh, study computer science at Texas A&M. Now, in 2005, between my junior and senior year, I got an internship out here in the Bay Area. And I returned full-time in 2006 when I graduated. So I've actually been with the same company now for 13 years, which is quite a long time for the tech sector. So faith and work is a huge topic, uh, one that's spawned an entire movement within the church. In fact, there was a faith and work LA conference yesterday, uh, so if this is an area where you're passionate about learning more, there's a ton of resources and speakers with far more experience and wisdom than I. That said, uh, there is a ton I could talk about in terms of being a Christian and a software engineer in Silicon Valley. I mean, I could share some interesting stories, some mistakes I've made along the way, but Church of the Valley isn't a church full of the tech stereotypes of, of salaried engineers, of venture capitalists, and digital marketing wizards. <clears throat> We're a multi-generational church with, with many people of different roles and different occupations. And so this morning, I want to address the whole of Church of the Valley. What does faith and work mean for all of us? What hope does the good news of grace have for our work when we're full-time students or part-time tutors or moms, dads, uh, retirees, when we're battling sickness, when we are looking for work? I think it's the same message for engineers, artists, policemen, that the more that grace changes us, the more our lives will joyfully point to Jesus in whatever we do. So let me open up with prayer real quick, and then we'll jump into 1 Corinthians 12, like Ruth just read. Father, uh, you are holy, and you are completely uh, unlike us. I, I thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning and speak, and I just pray that um, your words would be heard, not mine, and that your name would be revered. I just thank you, because I need you, we need you. 
Uh, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so some context on 1 Corinthians, and feel free to, to shout out the answer. Who's Paul writing to? Corinth, okay. Um, now, is he writing to the entire city or just the church there in Corinth? Church, church, yes. Just the church is, is who he's, he's talking to. Uh, let me show you a picture. Um, this is actually Corinth in 2016. Um, Sarah and I had the opportunity to visit Greece and Turkey uh, a couple years ago, and getting to tour Corinth was, was really fun, right? Because we were able to stand where the Apostle Paul stood and where he lived for probably about a year and a half, making tents and then also preaching about Jesus. Uh, now, Corinth was, was actually captured, it was destroyed and rebuilt a, long time, a few times over its very long history. It's also got an unfortunate tendency for earthquakes, but uh, I've also got a second picture here as well. See, it's not a thriving metropolis anymore, but back in Paul's time, uh, Corinth was a, a pretty rich and, and thriving town. You see, it was a, a port city with an economy of trade and a diverse population because you had lots of cultures coming through here, lots of traders, and they were all converging on this single spot. Sound familiar? Maybe a little bit like San Jose? But now a group of them right, are following Jesus, and Paul's writing to encourage them in diversity, in unity, and to correct some issues he'd heard about. Anyway, we're going to start with chapter 12, verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. So Paul's analogy here is that the church is like a physical body with many different parts working together. Isn't that an interesting choice to make? I mean, he doesn't use an agricultural metaphor and say that we're like a field of grain where we, we each have our own personal journey and we're growing beside each other at a different rate. He also doesn't use a military metaphor and say we're like a, a Roman phalanx where we're all identical soldiers, but we're a lot more effective fighting together. No, he, he says we're vastly different parts of a single body, a single living organism dependent on one another. We're bound together by one spirit, and he calls together vastly different cultures, Jews and Greeks. I mean, these are folks who just didn't naturally get along well. In Christ, even slaves at the bottom of the social order in Corinth, the lowest economic class, they're now one together with privileged Roman citizens. His call here is for unity, but a unity that first appreciates the diversity of grace, that God reaches people from all walks of life, from all backgrounds and all workplaces, so if anything, God actually biases toward the weak, the invisible, and sometimes even the zealous enemies, like the whole Saul to Paul conversion. Why would he do that? Well, well those who are self-righteous don't see how Jesus is necessary. And Paul writes at the beginning of the letter in chapter 1, in verse 26, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, and not many were of noble birth. Now, it's interesting here that the word calling actually literally means invitation. 
And when he's saying calling, he's talking about our invitation to follow Christ. He's not using the calling in the sense that we use with our jobs, saying, yeah, my calling is to do this, assuming we find our jobs fulfilling, right? But he also says that it's not because we're smarter or we're more noble or more worthy or more influential than anyone else. In fact, if you, if you focus on just these words, it, it can seem a little bit like he's insulting them until you see the next two words, but God. And those two words completely change everything, don't they? It's not like the calling was ours and we weren't anything awesome, but, but God, he's the active person here. So it continues, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So it, it goes from that, consider your calling, your invitation, to, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. Isn't that cool? Like Even in our calling to follow Jesus, we can't take any credit. It's, again, not because we're strong, smart, or influential. It's the opposite. We're the weak and we're the broken ones. We're the ones who get to respond to that invitation and repent of making it about us. We get to RSVP with a yes. So let's read on in chapter 12 and pick up with the body metaphor. Paul says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. So now, what group of people in the church is Paul talking to? Well, he's talking to the ones who say, I, I don't belong. Well, why not? Well, I'm not a hand. I'm not a preacher. I'm irrelevant. I'm unnecessary. And although most of us probably wouldn't admit it, I think the entrepreneurial culture has, has had a huge effect on our perspective within the church. I mean, just think about some names you might recognize in Christianity, like, you know, Billy Graham or Mother Teresa or Tim Keller or Tim Riley, even Justin Bieber, right? I'm sure you can name many more. We see these people as superstars, as, as mouthpieces of Christianity. And they kind of are. I mean, they're public figures. But then we make the mistake that Paul calls out here, and we compare ourselves to them. We think, well, they're important, and I'm irrelevant, not every Christian is gifted and called to be a public mouthpiece. This is a good thing. Paul's point here is that if your trust and your hope is in Jesus, you have a critical role to play in the church. So what does all of this have to do with faith and work? Well, everyone works. Every member of Jesus' church, and to be clear here, I'm talking you know, membership is in the body metaphor, not being, having your name on a, a roster. Every member of Jesus' church has a unique role, specific relationships, unique gifts, specific responsibilities. And said differently, the way you live matters because it's probably the first sign to the people you work with of who Jesus is. I mean, if Jesus really did do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, then our lives should be at least somewhat different as a result. And most of our lives isn't spent in church gatherings on a Sunday. Each and every one of us who follows Jesus is in 100% ministry. We don't have to spend our weeks inside a church building, and we don't have to get our paycheck from a church to be in full-time ministry. And ministry is just a fancy, churchy word of, of 
saying serving others. I mean, ministry means service to others. So we're all called 100% to the ministry of reconciliation, of making life about Jesus and pointing to him. And God has uniquely placed you and me in our roles, in a specific location, uh, in our family, in our, our group of friends, with specific gifts, a past, even our flaws. This is, this is the essence of the faith and work movement, that there's no, there's no pastor, missionary, and normal Christian split. We're just a bunch of people that Jesus has called with different roles, and we've all got the same mission. When Jesus gives some of his final marching orders to his disciples, he says in Matthew 28 that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age." Jesus isn't just talking to pastors here. So the question is, how do we take our jobs and our unique roles and make disciples of Jesus? Well, in 1 Corinthians, Paul was talking about our roles and our gifts inside the church, but I don't think it's too much of a stretch to apply it to the rest of our week, too. Because the church isn't a building, it's the people. It's that, that body that Paul's been talking about. And we spend the majority of our time out there doing stuff. I mean, everybody works. Everyone. So uh, I, I want to step back from the text for just a minute because there's a ton of misconceptions here. Now, when, when we hear the word work or workplace, uh, we hear it through the lens of our current 21st century culture. Is a workplace an office where you spend you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 80 hours a week? Or, or since it's Silicon Valley, maybe you work from home some or all of the time. I mean, we know what it means to work uh, full-time versus part-time. We, we know what salary it is and, and hourly. And then there's all of those other not-real-work answers that make everyone really awkward and uncomfortable. So it, it just feels like if you're not making money, well, then you're technically not really working, right? Nah, wrong. See, the, the problem here is that our culture's perspective on work has nothing to do with the biblical view. Take a look way back at Exodus 23, verse 12. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman or the, and the alien may be refreshed. So, so really quick, show of hands, how many of you made sure to give your donkey a day of rest this week? Awesome! <laughs> I'm not sure if I should believe you, but the first service didn't really have many either. <clears throat> okay, so, I mean, the more I think about this verse, the more I've been struck by how interesting this is. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. The context of this matters a ton. I mean, the Israelites hearing this command, they just came out of, like, some seriously full-time slavery in Egypt. It was round-the-clock labor, you know, seven days a week, and the Israelites were a poor and oppressed minority group. So when Moses shows up and says, hey, Pharaoh, let God's people go, things just get worse, like a lot worse. They get more work, they get less supplies, and they get harsher conditions. So that's why it's really cool to see that, you know, when Jesus, or when, when God brings his people out of Egypt, he commands them. He commands them to rest one day out of seven in honor of him. And, and this is in an ancient agrarian society, too. 
It's not as if they had a bunch of free time in the late Bronze Age. Although at this point, I mean, they were actually still in the desert and hadn't, hadn't gotten to the, the full-time farming thing yet. But it, it probably took quite a bit of trust and obedience to cut down from seven days to six. It can still take quite a bit of trust and obedience to even today. But if we use this verse as a strict definition of work, we don't actually work anymore because you know, none of us really used oxen or donkeys this week. Obviously, our definition of work has changed drastically over a few thousand years, but I'd argue so of our expectations. See, we no longer start with the expectation of, of working seven days a week, I hope, unless you're at like a crazy startup. See, most of us probably think of normal work week as like eight to five, Monday through Friday, something similar. That's, that's two days off right off the top, unless you have more than one job or you work a night schedule or a 980, or maybe you have a more full-time job like caretaker, uh, parent, something else. Regardless, we all have a certain expectation these days of free time. And we're also we're not an agrarian society anymore. We're pretty well off thanks to modern technology. We have a lot more free time on our hands, and, and maybe it's not as much as economists predicted for the 21st century, my phone tells me how much time I spend on it every week, and I, I gotta admit, it's surprising, right, to say the least. Uh, so, how's that working out for us? Well, if you, if you look at our society, I'm not sure you're gonna find people that are generally content and stress-free. I feel, fear that for too many, myself included, uh, the temptation is to feel entitled to our free time. The problem is that, that free time is not the same as rest. When I get home, it's easy to assume that since I've been at work all day, I deserve free time, and I shouldn't have to change diapers or help with dishes. I mean, don't you know who I am? Don't you realize the day I've had and how valuable my time is? I mean, my day's been stressful and tiring, which I'm sure you're all aware is not the right thing to say to someone who's been wrangling a 15-month-old all day. But I, I definitely find myself struggling with this, with this attitude of selfishness and entitlement, wanting me time. And my worry is that in 2019, we have too much me time, yet far too little rest. I mean, do we, do we need our Netflix, our Facebook, our late night gaming time? Or do we actually need to spend time with our Lord, sustained by every word that comes from the mouth of God? God has been teaching me about entitlement and need, and I'm sad to say I still feel like I'm, I'm having a lot of trouble getting the message. Anyway, if we look at Jesus' words in Matthew 11, he says this. He says, Come to me, all you, are here, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Wow. What a promise. And if I took a poll of the weary and burdened in this room, my guess is that counting might take a little while. But if we turn to Jesus, he'll give us rest? Do we do that, or do we turn to distractions? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Wait, take Jesus' yoke upon us? I mean, this is an active offer. He's not, he's not promising free time, but it is an offer to walk beside him, to find rest for our souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, when we work with Jesus instead of on our own, the burden is light because we're the weak part of the equation. Jesus is stronger than everything, and that really makes all the difference. 
See, whether you're a student, a doctor, unemployed, a full-time parent, a worship leader, or a software engineer like me, you're in 100% ministry, and your work encompasses a lot more than just your, your day job. See, work is more than just what we do in an office, and it encompasses a lot more than just the things we get paid to do. See, work is not just the things we get paid to do. Work is all of the things that Jesus invites us to do with him. Some paid, some unpaid. But the other side of that is that rest is all of the time that Jesus invites us to simply be with him. So if we really want to thrive here, we've got to rest in Jesus. And if we want to follow Jesus' command to make disciples of all nations, maybe we should start by being faithful and present in the relationships around us. To to minister to, to, to serve our family, our friends, our neighbors, and our coworkers. Not everybody is supposed to be a pastor. In fact, few are. That's, That's part of what makes the church awesome. See, Christ's body is made up of very different parts. Back to 1 Corinthians. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. This is cool, because you and I didn't pick the other people in the room. This is saying that, that Jesus did. And Jesus doesn't just build the church with broken people. He builds it with a diversity of broken people, right? Diversity in the church is God's design. We're, we're supposed to have different backgrounds, different gifts, different responsibilities, but one Lord. So what part of the body are you? I mean, if you, if you, if you answer appendix, either you've got a self-deprecating sense of humor, <laughs> or it's a sign of that imposter syndrome that Paul was talking early, about earlier. See, a right view of ourselves in the church in our different roles requires that we acknowledge God arrange the members of the body. See, when we focus on what we bring to the table or what we can do for God, we're, we're putting a, the focus on an ear or a nose. It doesn't make any sense. See, the focus is supposed to be on God. And a better question is, how has God arranged you and me to fit together and minister to one another to serve one another? Let's go on. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. If we look at someone and dismiss them because they're unnecessary or unimportant, we're making a very dangerous error because we're missing where value and identity comes from. Our work is not our identity. See, the first trap trap that Paul addresses here is the idea that our work, our roles, are meaningless unless we're we're missionaries or preachers. The second trap is going the other way and thinking that our work is the important thing, that it defines us, that it's our identity. And it's a super easy trap in Silicon Valley. It's easy to think that the good news is found in success at work. Uh, If we're successful, moving up the ladder toward vice president, uh, making a lot of money and giving it away, we're liked by our coworkers, we're solving innovative problems, well then, we're making the gospel more attractive. It's a really subtle and deceptive thing because when we should 
while we should work for our employers as unto the Lord, we're not the ones doing the heavy lifting. We're not the ones restoring people to God. And we can't earn more of God's favor by being successful in our careers. See, this is one of the central themes that Jesus teaches and warns his disciples about. I mean this. He repeatedly and seriously warns the people who appear the most successful, religious leaders and those who are rich. See, the kingdom of God isn't for the rich. It's for the poor in spirit. And it isn't for the self-righteous. It's for those who will repent. So even in the work of reconciliation, it's not about us. It's certainly not about our careers, and it wasn't about Paul either, his skills as a preacher or as a tent maker. See, as he points out earlier in the letter, in chapter 3, he says, What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Your value isn't tied to your job. It's not tied to how many people you've told about Jesus this week. To me, it, this is quite an encouragement. You see, I've been, I've been to retirement parties at work, and it's fun to hear about you know, things, how they used to be, fun work stories of how everything went back in the day. But it's also kind of sad to realize that too often the relationship is over because it was built on us working together and seeing each other in the office. It's over because when they retire, I'm unlikely to see the person again. This isn't how it is with God. He isn't interested in us because of our day jobs. He loves us because of who he is. So if you're retiring, or you've just been laid off, or you've decided to go back to school, or perhaps you're giving up a role to spend more time parenting your children, none of this changes the fact that your identity is safe with Jesus. You're not losing anything when what you do changes. See, we spend so much time at our jobs that it's, it's easy to have an attitude of extremes, right? On one hand, you could say, I, I love my job. It's important, it's fun, and it's the thing that gets me up in the morning. On the other hand, you might say, well, I, I hate my job. It's draining my soul, and I would be so much happier if I could just do, do something more meaningful, right? But, but both of these attitudes forget that the true lasting joy we're looking for isn't going to come from work. Are you, am, am I? making my job or even my current role in the church too much a part of my identity? I don't know, but it's, it's worth praying about. And if you hate your role, should you change jobs or should you change your attitude? I don't know. Pray. The answer might be both. So I'm, I'm going to teach to myself for a moment. See, for those of us with classical full-time positions like, like software engineer, Paul's message is clear. Don't look at others and say, I'm important, I don't, I don't need you. I mean, I, I probably wouldn't say it like that. It, it usually comes out as, oh, um, you're just a stay-at-home mom? Or you're just doing a, a sixth year in college? That's nice. And it's easy to pridefully look down on a brother or sister in Christ who is exactly in the role where God had, has placed them. I, I'm not going to mince words. When I think of myself as more important, it's ugly and it's sin. And it disrespects Jesus' body, the church. Verse 23. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. 
But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. God has composed the body so that in faithfully fulfilling our unique and sometimes less visible roles, there's unity instead of division. See, see, faith and work, they point us to grace. And that's the point. See, God's composed the body, and when we honor the faithfulness, the gifts, the service of others, we're reminded of Jesus, and we honor him. Faith and work point us to grace. See, if you're looking for a takeaway this week, find someone to encourage and give thanks to God for them. We don't follow Jesus to be more successful in our career. I mean, working hard and doing good deeds isn't why God loves us. We don't need to work for a spiritual paycheck so that God or karma will pay us back. Honestly, the more we understand grace, the more we can work without needing recognition or money or a job that will bend history. We work for free, and we find rest in Jesus. See, grace is God giving us infinitely more than we deserve. And grace is God becoming man, giving up everything, dying in our place for our sins and rising from the dead, all because he loves you and me. That's why we can work for free. Because we're not trying to earn anything. We've already been given our identity in him. So maybe you're thinking, okay, sure, that sounds nice in theory, right? But what does it have to do with the fact that, you know, Monday's coming, and our jobs and our weeks are really tough. Well, perspective matters. See, see Sarah and I are constantly reminded of sin's curse on work in its most annoying form. Laundry and dishes. Anyone else? <laughs> there's, there's little meaning to it, it feels like, and, and it never stops. And we're spoiled because we've only got a family of three, and we have really cool technological devices like washing machines. So I'm sure these, these chores probably build character. <laughs> That said, um, there are far more ridiculous chores, and, and chief among them is ironing. I mean, even if you're really into it, I, I guess the best you could say is that it's like therapeutic. But seriously, what's the point? Like, why bother ironing something and then going to a, the, the fancy work party and it gets wrinkled? And it's a complete waste of time, in my opinion. <laughs> if you couldn't guess, it's one of my least favorite tasks. I'm, I'm actually truly thankful that most of the time I can go years between um, having to iron things because I'm a software engineer, I can just wear t-shirts to work. So, uh, imagine my surprise and amusement when a while back I found out there's a group of people who practice extreme ironing. Yes, really. Look at the exhibit A. This dude, ironing on top of an epic cliff. Okay, so just enjoy staring at that for a moment while I provide some some more details on the sport. Some ironists, as they apparently call themselves, have ironed shirts while bungee jumping or skydiving. As said by Wikipedia, it's the latest danger sport that combines the thrills of an extreme outdoor activity with the satisfaction of a well-pressed shirt. <laughs> so, admittedly, it looks like a tongue-in-cheek attempt to make a common household chore awesome. And it works. I mean, I could even probably bring myself to iron stuff if it involved, like, hiking a trail with Malik and then taking epic selfies at the top with our irons. In case you hadn't <laughs> guessed, we totally did that. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Malik. <clears throat> now, I'm not suggesting 
that everybody take up extreme ironing. Although if you do, please make sure to share the pictures for the class. <laughs> but I am suggesting that purpose can transform even the most mundane chores into something much more. See, our jobs and our coworkers and our roles, and especially our trials, they all have the potential to become extreme reminders of grace. I mean, if we bring our work to Jesus, even the routine difficult parts can be opportunities to grow. Some examples. What about when I'm painstakingly looking for a show-stopping bug in the code? I mean, instead of being frustrated at the difficulty of finding a needle in a haystack, what if I could see it as a reminder? A reminder of how Jesus searches and debugs my heart. How he found my greatest need, how he paid the highest cost with eternal patience. It could be an opportunity to bring faith and work together, to pray, to work patiently, to grow spiritually, and to even enjoy God while debugging. Or maybe, maybe I'm tired of changing yet another poosplosion diaper. I mean, these, they're not fun. But what if I could learn to train my heart that instead of seeing it as a gross and frustrating task, what if a diaper actually could become a tangible reminder of God's love to me? That, that Jesus ministered to his disciples and he served them by washing his feet, his, his disciples' sand and poo-covered feet. Or, or maybe it's easy for me to be stressed by a looming deadline or a medical result or a last-minute demo. Could it be that these are actually gifts too? Intentional reminders from God that I'm, I'm not enough, but that he is. I mean, what if deadlines made me remember that God's in control, and yet even in Gethsemane, Jesus sought his Father in prayer, and he loves to hear our prayers now. See, this is why faith and work isn't about how we add faith to a full-time, nine-to-five, paying job with benefits. It's so much more than that. See, faith in our work is about asking how our roles, all of them, can point back to Jesus. Because even though most of our lives isn't spent in a church building, it's still 100% ministry. Because everyone works. Everyone worships. And if you're a follower of Jesus, congratulations, you're in full-time service to others. Also, our work is not our identity, because our roles, even those in the church, shouldn't be where we find our identity. That's found with our rest in Jesus. And, and faith and work, those, those can point us to grace. Those can be extreme reminders of grace to us, that it's not about success, it's not about free time, it's not about changing the world. It's about faithfulness, specifically Jesus' faithfulness, and how our God-given roles can remind us that he's gives, the one who gives grace, meaning and true rest. So what's the toughest part of last week been for you? What do you anticipate the toughest part of next week will be? In light of the grace we've been given, could this instead be a reminder of the gospel? What if it could be a reminder that Jesus became man, that he died for you and me, that he rose again, and that he loves us today, tomorrow, and the next day? So Paul finishes with this in verse 26. He says, If one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. Notice Paul doesn't end his analogy with, well, keep your problems to yourself so you look like a perfect Christian and you know, someone who's got it all together. He says the opposite. He says authenticity is necessary in the church body. We should be interconnected and one. So I'd like to pray, but afterwards, I also want to give everyone an opportunity. I want to give everyone a few minutes to, to share one thing with the person in front or behind you. 
Um, what's one thing from last week that you suffered and was discouraging? Or what's one thing that you were honored in and was encouraging? Seriously, how is the grace of God transforming your work? Let me pray. God, thank you for um, your grace to us, for creating work and, and also for being our rest. Thanks for the invitation to follow you. And, and Father, I, I know there's highs and there's lows, but I pray that you would remind us of grace daily as we face the entire week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, even Sunday. I just ask that you would um, help us to see what you're calling us to and just the, the joy in our roles. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.